Welcome to the Left MN Radio Hour, sponsored by Left.MN, the Minnesota website that leans left. I'm Aaron Clems with co-host Tony Petrangelo, and on today's big show, we talk about the news of the week. We discuss a mock-worthy column on guns, and we welcome Jason Alvey of the Four Firkins to discuss beer culture and the push to allow sale of beer and liquor on Sundays in Minnesota. But first, the weekly wrap. Every week, Tony opens an ancient book and repeats the following words. Klatu verata nikto. The book then speaks in a deep, rumbling voice to Tony, telling him a number of news items that he puts in the weekly wrap. So what do you have this week for us, Tony? What, what was that phrase from? It's, it's from the, the, is it Evil Dead 2, I think? It's okay, yeah. I, I thought that's what it was. I, I memorized was... your stupid words. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know those words. All right. Yes, I, I, that sounded Evil Dead-ish, but I wasn't sure. It could have been Indiana Jones as well. So what, what, what did the book tell you about the bonus election results? Bo- bonus elections, we had, we had bonus elections. Uh, they, they were, uh, you know, I guess they played out like, you would expect if you were predicting a, a regular election. Usually with bonus elections, it's a little bit of this thing where you don't know what the turnout's going to be. Uh, and since turnout's so much lower than a regular election, there's always questions about who will actually turn out and who won't turn out. And uh, it seems that the, the people who turned out tended to be kind of like a general election electorate. Sure. And, and, we, we always, and we have to ask the question, what's going to happen to Alan Quist now? Uh, well, I, I mean, don't know. Is he is he what is he like the perennial candidate now? If he, he runs tra- again, he's a perennial candidate. He's going to be like a Harold Stassen of. Yeah, I I don't necessarily know that I would label this particular run as a perennial run. He's, he's heading to Dick Franson territory. But or- I- any future runs, he will certainly have that label. Yes, I mean, if so, I don't know. If you're Alan Quist and you lose a congressional election like he did, and then almost immediately afterwards. A legislative seat opens up in in your district that you're eligible to run for. How do you not interpret that as a sign from God? Aww. Yeah, I mean, so I, I can totally understand why he would ran. And the this heavens open. Yes, it makes total sense to me, given who Alan Quist is. Well, but it, yeah, going forward, any future runs are are purely perennial vanity candidacies. If Alan Quist interpreted that coincidence as a sign from God, it makes you wonder what he interpreted the results of the election as. A firm rebuke. Probably. It, that, yes, God has rebuked Alan Quist. Uh, let's see. Um, this Valentine's Day, I'm sorry, this Thursday. Yes, it was uh, Thursday. Thursday, <laughs> uh, there was a rally for marriage equality up at the Minnesota Capitol. And about 2,000 to 2,500 folks showed up for a pretty rousing rally. So it sounds like we're on track, right? We're going to get marriage equality taken care of at the Capitol this session, right? Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Well, that, that seems to be the, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, I don't know. A lot of people are confident. A lot of people seem to think that there's, there, there's a, a piece, uh, <clears throat> Brianna Birschbach put out a piece talking about that, uh, lob, uh, that effort at, on Valentine's Day, it was basically a kickoff for Minnesotans United to start their lobbying effort for the bill, and she kind of went into what they were planning on doing and uh, talking to Scott Dibble, and he, you know, uh, thought there were some Republicans who might be on board. We've uh, only heard I, from one person, I believe, publicly that might even be wavering as a Republican, though, and that was a piece in, I think it was in Lavender Magazine, Andrea Kiefer said that she would have to think about it, but that's about the most we've gotten out of any Republican well, and like- the, the person who everybody had as the most likely Republican to vote in favor of equality was yeah. Tim Kelly from Red Wing. And he came out and said no. Nope. And he's in that in a different piece. Uh, no, it was in that same piece, that Brianna Birchbach piece. He 
he he said, yeah, no, I'm not voting for marriage equality. He basically said, which doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. He said he his whole point was government shouldn't be involved in marriage in the first place. So that's why he was against the amendment. And so now he didn't want to be a hypocrite by getting government involved in marriage again. I, I don't understand. Anyways, he said he's not gonna he's not gonna vote for it. So well, you who, know. Does, who does that leave then? I mean, we've done this nose counting before, and you did a good job of, of looking at some of the districts and new reps that are coming in. And I mean, there's there's a lot of Republican representatives or senators that um, represent districts that I mean, there were a lot of districts that voted Republican but still voted against the amendment. But a lot of those folks are the most virulent op- op- opponents yes. to uh, marriage equality. For example, David Han. David Han, yeah. In the Senate, he would be, you know, if he wasn't David Han, he would be the most likely Republican to vote for it. But he's David Han, and there's no way he's going to vote for right. it. Right. Um, yeah, and that's pretty much the case. All these Republican legislators who are in these districts where you would think, you know, where the district itself voted against the amendment, they themselves just based on who they are, don't look like they have any interest whatsoever in voting for yeah. them, or voting for equality. And then not only that, it's not just Republicans, but the DFL leadership is uh, in, enorm- is incredibly tepid in their support of these things. I mean, I went up to the Capitol on Friday to listen to the weekly press conference, and Paul Thiessen and Tom Bach wouldn't even promise a vote. And in fact, Tom Bach, when asked, have any members approached you about this, he goes, we have not had a single conversation about marriage or marriage equality in the caucus at all. And if true, that's kind of amazing. And if not true, I'm kind of disappointed that our that the DFL leadership is doing that. Well, it could be that Tom Bach hasn't had any conversations. That's true. I find it hard to believe that there have been no conversations. Yeah, I mean, I think he means by that that the, the when they had a caucus a whole, meeting, yeah. they haven't had this discussion. But that's not surprising. There hasn't been a bill. It, well, you know, the, the the leadership has made every effort so far to not talk about this. Yeah. Um, and Box said specifically, if it has 34 votes, it's going to get to the floor or something right. along those lines. If it doesn't, it won't. Right. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's how stuff works, right? You know, usually the leadership doesn't want to bring something to the floor if it's not going to pass. What's the point? So. Well, uh, yeah. The takeaway from all this is that that rally indicates that there's a lot of popular support for these provisions for marriage equality, and the press conference that followed it indicates you're going to have to yell and scream and get in people's faces in order to make them vote for it. So, uh, well, and it, get ready for that. It does yeah. seem like it, it does seem like it's going to have to be all DFL votes. I yeah. mean, so the thing is, even if there is, let's say, one Republican in the Senate or House who you can pick off, would that Republican want to be the one Republican? Who votes for marriage equality? Yeah, and there's not a lot of folks out there like John Crizel, you know, who basically would be willing to do that and and flip you the bird and tell you that he doesn't care what you think about him. Um, but there's not a lot of that uh, kind of spirit, I think, in the new Republican legislators that replaced um, replaced people like him. So um, we'll have to keep an eye on this. Speaking of uh, people who violate, you know, people who switch parties or. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're, we're following the Minneapolis mayor election pretty pretty closely. We had uh, Gary Schiff up at Drinking Liberally at the 331 Club this Thursday. Um, we'll have another Minneapolis mayor candidate next Thursday, right? I believe Mark Andrew, former Hennepin County Commissioner. And I believe Betsy Hodges the week after, or is she a couple weeks It may later, not be or? the week after. Okay. We'll, we'll keep folks updated about that. But basically there's a series of Minneapolis mayor candidates coming to the 331 Club Thursday, 7 p.m., to talk to folks at Drinking Liberally. Um, one of those people who will not be appearing is Cam Winton because he's running as a Republican. 
Um, a wind energy uh, executive. He, no, he he's in the article I read. He said he's running as an independent. Oh. He, well, he, he's said, at the, he's he said at the he identifies somewhat with the Republican Party, but he said he's not seeking any party endorsement and won't accept one if one does endorse him. Let's just put it this way. I'm following the folks on Twitter on Saturday, <laughs> and all the Republican Twitter folks that I follow are buzz, buzzing about Cam Whitten and how awesome he is. So um, he may be running as an independent, but he is the closest thing to a Minneapolis Republican as you're going to find in this race. Well, in, in Minneapolis, the word Republican might as well be Nazi. So well, I think that's why he's probably think, decided I'm not going to run as a Republican, even if I am one. When I say Minneapolis Republican, there are a whole host. There's a long history of liberal Republicanism in Minneapolis as a city. It's just that they... And when was the last Republican elected official in Minneapolis? Sometime in the early 70s, if I recall correctly. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's been a while. But anyway, um, a former DFL uh, endorsed and DFL primary winning uh, uh, congressional candidate Ash Medea is backing Cam Winton. He's his race. treasurer. He's his treasurer. So, so he's to, not just backing him. He'll be on all the literature. He's, he's putting his his name on the line when it comes to yeah. uh, the finances of the campaign. And his name will be on every piece of literature that comes out because he's the treasurer. That's the by the way, that's the one party or sorry the one campaign official whose name beside the candidate ends up on all the on the literature so he's a very visible uh supporter of somebody who as you said identifies with the republican party but may run as an independent um there's also this week uh something that i find really amusing which is the the perennial rules fights and process fights that happen in the legislature um this one involves a, a fight in the minnesota house about the role and timing of amendments and if you follow Republicans, it's like, I don't know, like the jackbooted thugs are coming and putting their, you know, their, their boots at their throat because they have to they have to file an amendment 24 hours in advance. The, the travesty, the horror, yeah. the horror, as uh, uh, Colonel Willard would say. right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the same Friday press conference, Kurt Doubt was talking about how this is all fake transparency. Um, but you probably will recall not very long ago. Remember the whole thing about the health care bill? What did they say about it? Nobody read it. Nobody read the bill. We need to have this. The bill needs to be posted for 24, 36, 48 hours so the public can read it. But apparently, when it comes to uh, amendments offered on the fly. By lobbyists. Mostly by lobbyists. And in fact, lobbyists are the ones that are the most concerned about this, I imagine, because. Because your average concerned citizen goes up to legislators in the middle of uh, hearings and offers bills to them, right? Is that how Well, according, that to, works? according to Kurt Dowd, he claims that uh, constituents will email him suggestions during floor debate. Oh, okay. And by constituents, I assume he lobbyists. means lobbyists. Yes, yes. That's, yes. Um, that's what they mean. I, I'm all for making good policy and good law, but the idea that all of a sudden that um, limiting the ability of anybody, and by the way, this, this limitation applies to members both of the minority party, the Republicans, and also the majority, the DFL. Uh, to uh, that they have to file amendments that are for debates that they know are coming up, so that we actually know what the amendments are, and people can respond to them. And the but pu- it's the most terrible assist thing ever. I know it's so sad. I could just see a tear running down Kurt Doubt's face while he was talking. Hey, you know about what they this. say? What elections have consequences. They do. And the Republicans should have kept the house if they didn't want this to happen. That's well, and I don't. I mean, I don't even want to go there because I don't think this is a bad policy decision at all. But, you know, as soon as you switch power and you switch policy, you know, we had an eight-hour debate over this in the House last week. Eight hours on amendments. All right. You're listening to the Left Amendment Radio Hour. That's the weekly wrap brought to you every week by the Necronomicon and Tony Petrangelo. You can find links and more on our website, left.mn. 
You're listening to the Left Demand Radio Hour on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back. You're listening to the Left MN Radio Hour, sponsored by Left.MN, the Minnesota website that leans left. And in 30 seconds, we're all going to start dancing. On Left MN. That's where the beat drops right That's the beat drop. Uh, on Left MN, uh, Steve Timmer, one of our co-authors, sometimes identifies op-ed pieces that he, that he thinks deserve the Spotty Award, and he gives that award to opinion pieces that he wishes that he'd written. And actually gave one this week to the piece about the Pope moving to Florida when he retires. That piece is pretty funny. That's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> if you want to see that, go to the left MN. Um, check it out. But every once in a while, there's also an opinion piece that is so wrong, such a travesty, such a terrible thing, that Tony and I decide to openly mock it on the air. And that honor this week goes to David Strom, currently listed as a fellow at the Center for the American Experiment. who published and quite the fellow he is. Yeah, he's a fellow. Fellow. Uh, who published a op-ed so dripping with hypocrisy and fallacy that it deserves. No, it desperately needs to be mocked openly. So, Tony, what grabbed your attention about this thing, first of all? Uh, well, I, I like how, I don't know. He, so, Well, first of all, let's tell people where they can read it if they want to read okay. this post. It, I, it, I hate to give the traffic, but at least it goes to MinPost, because it's actually a, a piece that was published in MinPost, MinPost.com, on the 11th of February, titled, the was it, The Culture Wars Are Real. Yes. Yes. So the, they they are real. They are real. We're we're in the midst of a number of ongoing bitter culture wars. And I, <laughs> <laughs> not really. I mean, I guess some people are. I'm not. Well, the culture warrior himself, David Strom, decides to post a, a piece that basically says that. Well, what does it say anyway? Well, so it, I mean, it's just basically <laughs> he tries to make this thing about how. In the gun argument, everybody's just in their camps, you know? You got, you got the, these people in their one camp and these other people in their other camp and they're just fighting this war and they're just shooting bullets at each other. Nobody's listening to facts. Nobody's using facts. They're just, they're just saying stuff and believing things without having any reason for believing it. Maybe I should just read a, a couple of quotes from the article. Well, okay. And then we'll, and then we'll talk about each one. So here's the first one that really grabbed me. Um, instead, most of us pick teams and outsource our thinking to them. And the quality of that thinking is, in the whole, simply terrible. Talking about how people want to make the world a better place, but instead of actually doing something about it, they outsource their thinking to other to teams of people who do that work for them. Wait, hold on. Where does David Strom work? I think he works for a, a a think tank called the Center for the American Experiment. So, if you were going to describe that in sort of layman's terms, what would you say that was? Uh, outsourced thinking. Yeah, a team of people a team who of people think who they, for people. Yeah, who then write pieces oh. about opinion. And So David Strom is saying the thing he does for a living is making people stupid. I, I think that's, well, maybe he wouldn't agree with that, but I think that's pretty much what he's saying. That's what he says yeah, right there says. in his article. I mean, that's what he implies, is yes. that he is responsible for the downfall of Western civilization. <laughs> that's what I gather, at least. I, you know, and I also like the idea of outsourcing people's thinking. Yes, yes. And if you're an outsourcer thinking, you might pick somebody a little bit, I don't know, more persuasive, perhaps. Let's try the second quote here. The issue du jour, of course, is guns. Lots of heat and very little light are sh- is shed in the so-called debates over how to deal with gun violence. And the reason is simple. Few of the participants actually are focused on dealing with the issue of gun violence, regardless of what they say or even believe. 
which is just re- so all of these people who are now reacting to this situation in the, in the wake of of Newton pretty much but it, it's sort of been building before or, that in the wake of Newtown and then the week uh, the wake of here locally of Oakdale yes um, and a number of other Cold events Spring. beyond Oakdale yeah Cold you know, Spring yes i mean it's and you know this this Oakdale thing is a real i mean that's a i mean this is incredibly visceral it reminded me of the DC sniper just a guy who by all accounts was using a legal 9 millimeter handgun that he owned and um, as the Oakdale police chief so delicately put, we have no reason to believe he possessed it illegally. Um, but they can't say by law whether he's a permit holder or not. So we'll never know for sure. And just randomly started shooting at people. Previously law-abiding citizen. No signs of mental illness. No criminal record. But this isn't something anybody's worried about. They're reacting to these situations purely out of partisan, like, what? This is ridiculous. People are... Like they want to keep they they want to stop gun violence. Yes, people we, want this to stop. We, we may disagree about how to do with, that. Yes, but there's no doubt that these people have an authentic belief that we need to do something. There's no about reason gun that this should be happening all the time. And to just say, well, it's what we have to live with because we're a society with guns is BS. We don't accept these situations for anything else. We don't accept. Uh, 20 people dying at once for no reason whatsoever and say, well, there's nothing we can do about that. Let's just move on with our lives. Um, you know, again, this is just a ridiculous argument. People yeah. obviously are very concerned about gun violence, which is the whole point of the reaction. Yeah. Here's, and here's the part that really you were talking about, and this ticks me off too, but uh, think about how this – is, this is David Strom speaking here. Simple. Think of how little discussion there has been regarding actual data and what realistic changes in public policy could actually accomplish. Partisans wield statistics occasionally, but only as rhetorical weapons, not to enlighten. And then he immediately starts wielding statistics. Yes, as, as rhetorical weapons, as, not, to enlighten, not to enlighten. Because he starts talking about the overall level of, of violence and how it's gone down. Which, ha- which is true. Well, that- And it is true, but that's not the point. People aren't reacting to an overall level of violence. People are reacting to... an perceived and an actual increase in the number of mass killings yeah which is different issue entirely than the overall level of violence but it's an issue that is certainly a very real issue and is causing people to lose their lives yeah and and even even after he does that he says i am not suggesting a causal relationship here well then what are you doing exactly if you're not saying that the increase in an increase in possession of guns and by the way fewer people today own guns than they did 30 or 40 years ago there are more guns, but they're concentrated in the hands of a smaller and shrinking number of people, which is part of the reason why the NRA has to work so hard to market those, their guns to the smaller number of people who are actually buying them. And that's why they do things like carry laws, and they push for that, because they want to provide new markets for things for the small number of people that buy guns, um, and they'll, they'll buy more of them. Um, I think one of the things that really bugs me about this piece, though, is the idea, and it repeats a lot of the same old stuff. You know, the United States violent crime rate is actually somewhere between one-half and one-fifth of that of Great Britain, and as many folks pointed out in the comments on this MinPost piece, one of the few places where comments are actually more insightful than the actual article. Sometimes. Yeah, most sometimes. Uh, but these were actually quite good. Uh, Britt Robson, for example, used to write for the City Pages, wrote quite a few things on this, on this comment thread that are really, I think, quite, quite good. Uh, point out that there's differences in the way that Great Britain and the United States report violent crime. Um, so things that we wouldn't consider violent crimes here in the United States. 
um, are, like, for example, burglary are, are counted in those violent crime statistics in Great Britain. So it's not an apples-to-apples apples comparison. Another thing that Strom admits, but then acts like he didn't just admit that. Um, well, and then, and then he says, oh, data shouldn't be used as a rhetorical device, and then he uses data, and then says, oh, but I'm not trying to make a causal relationship here. So why are you using that data then? Yeah. What is the point? Well, what is the point of this article, David Strom? I think, you know, but on, on, on the very most basic level, I, I agree with him in some ways. We do have teams of people. We do tend to uh, associate on issues that are more cultural sometimes than political even. And, but I don't understand why that's new or wrong. Uh, th- yes, this is a culture deb- a debate about culture. It's about the culture of how we think about guns in the United States, how we think about them here in Minnesota. And, yeah, there's a big difference between the, the gun crowd that shows up at the Capitol packing heat and the folks who think that we should try to reduce gun violence. That's just my opinion, but I'm on one team. All right, you're listening to the AM9, you're listening to AM950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the left MN radio hour. And when we come back, we're talking with Jason Alvia, the Four Ferkins, about Sunday sales, whether we're ever going to get rid of the blue laws here in Minnesota. Welcome back to the Left MN Radio, or sponsored by Left.MN, the Minnesota website that leans left. This week we're joined in studio by Jason Alvey. He's the owner of the Four Firkins in St. Louis Park, the best beer store in the Twin Cities, if you ask me, and a center for Minnesota's rapidly developing and burgeoning beer culture. He's also an advocate for changes to Minnesota's beer and liquor laws, including Sunday sales legislation that is currently, I think, kind of in limbo at the Capitol. Um, but thanks for joining us today, Jason. We really appreciate it. Aaron, thanks for having me, mate. Yes. It's my pleasure. Well, uh, first of all, for folks who are listening right now and don't know who you are or what your business is, tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, what, your, what the Four Firkins is. Sure. Well, as you can probably hear, I'm not originally from Minnesota. I grew up in Australia, moved here in uh, 2001 to be with my wife, Heather, and soon after acquired a, a, a deep passion for craft beer which I'd never really drank much of in Australia, and uh, so much so that eventually I ended up opening a beer-only store, the Four Firkins, and it is uh, the only beer-only store in the state of Minnesota, which makes it quite special. So we're a liquor store, but we only sell beer. And um, so you started off in a, a smaller location, right, down in, was it Texas and Louisiana, I think? Yeah, Minnetonka in Texas, okay. just across the street from Eric's Bike Shop. We, our retail space was 500 square feet, but, um, you know, we, we uh, grew so rapidly that we had to move out of there. And uh, about a year ago, we moved into this new space, which is um, two and a half times as big as our original space and uh, lots of parking and lots more beer. Yeah. Um, so when you started, so the Firkins started, when again? Was it you said three or four years ago? May 2008. 2008. Yeah. And, and even then... The beer scene in Minnesota was a lot different than it is now. Yes. Um, so, what was the beer scene like when you started? I mean, I, one of the reputations you had was with, with the one place you could go to get a lot of this stuff in the Twin Cities. That, and you could go there and talk to us about the beer too, you know. And we can do it in a non-elitist, down-to-earth way and get regular people excited to try all these new beers that were popping up. Mm-hmm. You know, back then Surly had just opened and Flat Earth had just opened and. And we heard rumors that there were even more coming, uh, so we knew our timing was pretty good. And now, of course, you know, it's blowing up. There's soon to be 40 Minnesota craft breweries, and, and I know there's a bunch more in the works. It's just incredible. Yeah. I mean, so who are your customers? I mean, how, how are they different than other, other kinds of 
beer purchasing customers? Well, it, it's very different from what you'd expect. Uh, the actual, what we'd call a, a craft beer geek or a beer enthusiast, uh, makes up a pretty small percentage of our customer base. Probably 60-70% of the people who come through that door really don't know much about beer at all. They're just normal people from all walks of life, and they're excited to try new kinds of beer. And, and that's what I tell people uh, when I'm talking about this, is craft beer in Minnesota stopped being a niche. It's no longer the realm of 25- to 30-year-old males. Everybody's drinking it. And it's really fun. Yeah. So a part of that brewery explosion is interesting to me is, I mean, you got, the, as you said, 40, new brewer, 40 breweries now from a very small number, not you know, a decade ago. We yeah. were counting this on one hand. Yes. And now we have to grow extra hands to count the number of breweries. What what was really the impetus for that, do you think? Is this, like, is this part of a, a broader trend, a national trend, or is there something specific about Minneapolis-St. Paul that really caused it to build up here? There is a national trend happening, but specifically here, when you look at motor, Minnesota, what I think is going on is you've got a, uh, a, a large city of people who really do enjoy the finer things in life. You know, people who drink craft beer are not just drinking craft beer, you'll find that most of them are foodies. Most of them enjoy bourbon or scotch. Mm -hmm. Most of them enjoy really good coffee, you know. So these people are enjoying all kinds of things. So craft beer is is a natural step. Yeah, and and, and another thing about the Twin Cities that's always been true, at least in my lifetime, is that there's a lot of home brewers too. Oh. And what do you think the role of the home brewery is in this kind of craft beer explosion? Uh, definitely more than significant, a major role. A lot of our customers are home brewers. Uh, we're, we're all avid home brewers as well, or at least I, I used to be before I opened up the store. Now I, I don't have a whole lot of time for it. But no, you're too busy for it. Pretty much. I, I dream of retiring and growing a beard, living on the North Shore and doing nothing but brewing beer. That we'll sounds see. terrible. Yeah. That sounds just terrible. If you need something to market for you, just let me know. Um, on a kind of random question too, what's a new what's a new brewery that you just that you think is a dark horse that people haven't really heard about yet, um, but you think is the next big thing? Or oh well, I don't know that there are too many dark horses out there that people haven't heard about. You know, so many people are into this. We went up to Dangerous Man that just opened up recently in northeast Minneapolis, and the place was absolutely packed. Yeah, it's, yeah. So it's pretty hard to open up a brewery in Minnesota and not get heard about. Um, yeah, I, re- I really, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't know how to answer that, I actually. Yeah. I wouldn't want you to pick favorites or anything. <laughs> but um, So one of the reasons why you're here, of course, is to talk about uh, the law and what role it plays. And, of course, liquor and beer are two of the most, you know, this is one of the most regulated areas in the state. Yes. There's so many laws. Um, and we were talking before we started this interview about the, the kind of history of this and where it all comes from. Um, so... Why is Minnesota seems like it has a really restrictive set of regulations when it comes to liquor and beer sales um, on when we can sell it, how you can sell it, who can sell it. Um, what's kind of the historical background on some of that? Minnesota is restrictive, but it's it's far from being the worst. There's a lot of states out there that have uh, really draconian laws. And this all stems from prohibition, basically. Once prohibition was repealed, the federal government essentially said, okay, we understand that we need to have alcohol, but we're going to do it differently. We're not going to let the same situation happen uh, that led to prohibition. So we're going to have these three tiers. Tier one, you're going to have the producer, which is the brewery or the importer. Tier two, uh, the distributor, a middleman that didn't exist before prohibition. And tier three is a retailer, a store like mine or a bar. 
And there can't be any sideways ownership. The the product has to go from the bottom to the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was federal. And then they said, all right, every state has the right to interpret that three-tier system in a way that suits the state best. So you end up with every state having slightly different versions of the three-tier system. And uh, one of the things that has impacted Minnesota greatly is the fact that uh, uh, when it was their turn to decide how they're going to do things, they decided that grocery stores were going to be separate from off-sale liquor stores. So that is, uh, off-sale liquor stores had a finite list of products that we could sell as, as a liquor store, and if it wasn't on that list, it was considered the realm of the grocery store. So it wasn't that uh, apparel, for example, we had we had to uh, change the law so we could sell self-branded T-shirts at, at my store, which seems ridiculous, right, uh, that I couldn't sell a, a T-shirt that said the four Firkins. Yeah. But it wasn't included on that list of things that a liquor store was allowed to sell. Therefore, it was considered the realm of the grocery store. You know, like Target. Yeah, and in reverse, the grocery stores can't sell liquor and beer unless it's 3-2, right? Well, they can. They have to have an attached liquor store with a separate entrance. Okay. And that was one of the, the, the grocery store association, actually, just out of principle, I, I guess they must have been bored. They opposed our T-shirt bill the first year we introduced <laughs> it. And you know what they said? They actually said, if you want to sell apparel, then liquor stores should have to have a separate attached apparel store with a separate entrance, just like we have to do with liquor. Uh, to which, of course, I responded, look, I don't want to sell shoes or jeans or lingerie. I just want to sell a couple of bloody shirts that say four firkins. You don't want to sell lingerie with four firkins? <laughs> well, we actually do. <laughs> we, we, after I said that, I thought, hang on, that might be cool. So, yeah. so we do sell ladies' underwear that say four firkins. Yeah. Nice. Uh, you're listening to AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. This is the Left MN Radio Hour. I'm Aaron Clems with Tony Petrangelo, and we're talking with Jason Alvey, the proprietor of the Four Firkins, about liquor laws in Minnesota. Um, and so you went, after, you went up to the Capitol and did this merchandise sales bill, which is a really limited change. And this is a, this is a tiny little bill. We were adding one product to that list of things that we could sell. How, long, how, how much work did it take to add that one product to that one list of things? An, an unbelievable amount of work, actually, and this is why a lot of people don't get involved in uh, l- legislation or, or trying to change laws. Um, once you get uh, started down that road uh, and you realize how stressful it is and how frustrating it is and how much work you're going to have to put in, I'm sure a lot of people just give up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we introduced it the first year, and uh, it was um, taken out of, of the committee. It wasn't even voted on, uh, so we had to go back a second year. And uh, we got it through, but I think we got lucky. You know, the <clears throat> the grocery store association was focused on a bill of their own, so we kind of slipped under the radar with our apparel bill the second time around. Yeah, it's not easy. And then the other big bill that, of course, was going around the Capitol at the same time was this Surly bill, the bill that would allow breweries to sell their own product on their own premises. Yeah. And that was more controversial, even I should hope so, more more controversial than the apparel bill. Yes. Um, and it, but it also got through. So what what did what did folks learn about changing liquor laws by the experience that Surly and Omar Ansari and other folks had with that? Well, uh, I was actually honored to be a part of that. Omar asked me to testify in support because uh, one of the problems they were having is that liquor stores were opposing that. They they were saying, well, if you're a brewery, you're tier one, you're not allowed to sell retail, you have to sell it to us. So therefore, if you sell retail, you'll become competition for us, um, which of course was fairly narrow-minded. If you had 
If you have a, a, a $20 million brewery one mile down the road from your liquor store, you know, it's a destination brewery, you're probably going to get a few extra customers who are, who are coming your way, you know. Uh, so, but the, in, to answer your question, the one major thing that we learned from that experience um, really came down to the power of social media in terms of rousing the troops and getting people to the capital. That, uh, the capital was packed the day that that, that was heard, and um, by far most of the people there were beer people. It was pretty cool. So did you see a change in the attitude of legislators and there was a whole bunch of people there uh, supporting you? I mean, it's one of those things that you see at the Capitol all the time is if you're a group that can rouse people and get them to get up there at the Capitol and put a bug in the ear of legislators, they might actually do something about it. Did you see a change in the attitude after that? Well, yeah, yes and no. Um, <clears throat> after that, it was uh, it was quite a while till I was back there again. And uh, that that particular one, uh, that particular bill was fairly high profile, so legislators were aware that there was a lot of people watching it. Uh, now, you know, I'm going back with, with uh, the Sunday sales thing, and it's, you'd think it would be high profile, but it's, it's really not. It's really quite difficult to get people um, up in arms and, and focused and, and ready to get on the phone and call their legislators, mm -hmm. because it seems like such a common sense thing. It's like, my God, why wasn't this done 20 years ago? Um, so um, it's kind of a different feel. Yeah, I mean, I guess the time people will probably feel the most motivated to call somebody might be on Sunday when they can't, <laughs> yeah. when they can't buy liquor or beer. Yep. Um, and that's, you know, those consumers aren't nearly as motivated, perhaps, as a, as the beverage association would be in pr protecting what they think are their economic interests. Right. You know, uh, so maybe we, just, we should start talking about that then. Uh, you know, the, the major – oh, okay – well, uh, the major opposition is, of course, the liquor stores themselves, and um, uh, we'll talk more about that when we when we come back. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, and you know, we'll, I think one of the, th the cool things about the Sunday sales bill is that it's not really about party, but it's about kind of more other sometimes parochial interests. Sometimes it's about the location of where someone's at, and also who their constituents are. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely not. I mean, it's um, <clears throat> whenever they do a survey here in Minnesota. 60 to 70 percent of the people surveyed want want uh, liquor stores open on Sunday, and it doesn't matter whether they're Democrat or Republican. Yeah. All right, you're listening to the Left MN Radio Hour. Um, I'm Aaron Clems, talking to Jason Alvey from the Four Firkins about Sunday sales. We're going to come back in just a minute, and we're going to pick up this conversation where we left off on AM 950, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to the Left MN Radio Hour on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. I'm talking with Jason Alvey from the Four Firkins about liquor laws this hour. I think you're listening to some polka music. Good choice, Tony. Uh, and when we left off, you mentioned that the, the, the surveys, 60 to 70% of people, regardless of party, generally yep. think this is a good idea to allow sales of liquor and beer on Sundays. And neighboring states do it, too. So... What's the big deal? Why why can't we get a 70% support for something? Seems like it'd be a slam dunk. What's going on? You would think so. Well, the the problem is that we 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 cannot seem to get to a point where a bill will get far enough uh, that we can that we can really muster up the public support. That's what we really need to have happen. Is is the public needs to get so annoyed and so pissed that this still exists that they're calling. Uh, their legislators in droves. I mean, and calling, e emailing is good, but we want their phones to literally ring all day. 
Because what's happening is this uh, this repeal, this ban is being kept in place by other liquor stores uh, who are uh, all members of the uh, Minnesota Licensed Beverage Association, MLBA, which is a very powerful lobbying group, mm-hmm. and they do not want that ban repealed. Um, you know, I'm a retailer. The number one rule of retail is you listen to your customers. By far, most of my customers would like the convenience of shopping on a Sunday. I would like to be open on a Sunday. I absolutely believe that trade on a Sunday would be three times better than trade on a Monday. You know, Monday in a liquor store is terrible. Mm-hmm. But the choice should be mine to make. You know, I would like to open on a Sunday, uh, and, and then if I choose to, close on a Monday like the restaurants do. But um, <clears throat> we're not going to get to that point unless we can uh, get enough people to call the legislators and say, listen, you need to, you need to listen to us. We're your constituents. You know, stop listening to the MLBA. If the, the liquor store owners don't like it, and, and if they're worried about how they're going to make ends meet, you know, if they're open seven days a week or, or six days a week, different days or whatever, you know, that's a challenge that, frankly, every retailer faces. And if, and if a liquor store owner can't deal with that, then maybe they shouldn't be a liquor store owner. Maybe they shouldn't be in business. So why... So I'm, I'm really interested in this perspective because you hear this from retailers, and, it, and this, the argument that I've heard that's probably the, the most clearly articulated argument is that the, the demand is static, that there's you know, a certain amount of demand for alcohol and liquor sales throughout the week, and if either we concentrate it over six days or we spread it out over seven and cost ourselves in labor. Yeah. Um, why, do you, why don't you why, – what, what's no, that, your issue with that? The, well, that is, it's flawed, and it's been proved incorrect by every state that has repealed this ban recently. Every, every year another state falls, and, and you know what? None of them say, hey, this was a bad idea. Let's go back to banning Sunday sales. They all show overall uh, growth in terms of uh, liquor industry revenue. Yeah. Uh, the other angle or the, the other – uh, direction I'm coming from is uh, I've always worked retail. I've worked retail for 22 years of my life, and I've worked in three different countries in, in three different industries. Mm-hmm. And I know that the three busiest days of the week are Friday, Saturday, Sunday. doesn't matter what the industry is. That's because people are out on Sunday. Impulse purchases will happen. Mondays, nobody's doing anything. You know, you think about what people do on Sunday. They're going to football, they're going to barbecues, weddings, whatever. It will absolutely create sales that aren't there, or, you know, on a Monday. And, and if there wasn't any demand, folks wouldn't be crossing borders to, to purchase liquor and beer on Sundays. And we know that the people do that to some extent. It's, it's certainly more prevalent in border communities. And the Twin Cities is pretty close to a border community. Um, uh, Senator Roger Reinert is one of the sponsors of the Sunday sales bill. Yep. Uh, he's from Duluth. Um, how much business do you think goes over the border as a result of the fact that Sunday liquor sales aren't allowed? Well, I know that uh, Sunday is Casanova Liquor Store's uh, busiest day. Uh, Casanova's is a little little liquor store in Hudson, and uh, the guys there have told me that that, that is their busiest day, and, and it's all Minnesotans coming across the border. But, uh, you know, I think that uh, even if you're able to record how much money is being lost across the border, it's not a good indication of the impulse sales we're missing out on, because most people, to be honest, would just say, Oh, that's right. Liquor stores are closed on Sunday. Darn it. I guess I'm going without and just not do anything about it. You know, it's it's only the people that really, really want a beer who are going to drive to Hudson. It's a long way to drive for a lot yes. of people. <laughs> um, to the taverns, the on-sale establishments, do they oppose? Yeah. Some, some do. Some don't. 
the argument against for for bars is that uh, they, they some of them believe that it will take away from their revenue, which I think is a completely flawed argument. Repeat. People who are going to a bar on a Sunday are going for the social aspect. Mm -hmm. Those same people are not going to suddenly say, oh, look, we can buy a beer at the liquor store now. Let's go buy some and drink on the couch with the curtain shut. That's just not what's going to happen. If you're going to go to a bar, you're going to still go to a bar. So I don't think they've got anything to worry about. Yeah. So you, you mentioned earlier that the thing that's going to break this impasse is if we get people really, you know, that th th there has to be momentum towards some vote. Yes. And there has to be a moment where folks can really weigh in on it. Yes. So how are you and other folks trying to try, trying to create that opportunity for folks to really realize this is possible and give them an avenue to make that to express their beliefs to their legislators? So this has been spearheaded by a consumer group called the Minnesota Beer Activist, uh, headed up by a good mate of mine, Andrew Schmidt. So he has a website, uh, mnbeeractivist.com, where you can go and sign a petition. There's also links there that you can go and in one click find who your legislator is and, and call them. Uh, we, on the, st on the retail store level, uh, we have a, uh, a mass email that goes out via constant contact that goes out to 10,000 people uh, mm -hmm. every Friday. And the last two Fridays in a row, we've had a, a similar little uh, blurb in there about Sunday sales and the fact that we want to repeal it with a link so that people can find their legislators and call it. But we can only do so much. And this is about so much more than just beer. You know, this is wine, this is spirits uh, as well. Uh, so somehow we've, we need to find the connection with, those, with that segment of the industry and get those people riled up as well. And that's the challenge. Yeah. Um, so there are bills introduced right now. Yes. Uh, are either of them scheduled for a hearing in any committees yet? You know, I, I don't know that there's, I know that there's a, a, a time limit if nothing happens right. to the one that's in the Senate. I don't know whether there's any hearing happening. Uh, it, it, it could very well just get pulled out. Mm -hmm. You know, b before anything happens, uh, just like my original apparel bill did. Uh, we'll see. It would be very frustrating, frustrating if that happened. Um, I will say that it's got more exposure in the press, uh, in the media this year than any um, uh, <coughs> any of the years past that it's yeah. been introduced. And, and 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 more than the year before and the year before that. I mean, I remember last year when it got introduced, it got some it got some decent press. But yes, it does. As you as you noted, it takes time sometimes for these things to take root. Yeah, yep. Um, you know, the, the other part of the battle is, of course, to to try to dispel some of the unnecessary fears that these liquor store owners have. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of them just keep saying, I don't want to be open seven days a week. I don't think they, they understand that they would have the option to close on a Monday. And then uh, um, the other issue, of course, is uh, a lot of them are afraid that this will lead to grocery stores having beer and wine in the aisle, which is absolutely false as well. Yeah. So in the last couple of seconds we got left, give people the reminder about how they can get involved. So please uh, call your legislators and tell them that you want the convenience of being able to buy alcohol on a Sunday. And thank you very much. Thanks very much to Jason Alvey. I really appreciate you coming into the studio today. Um, you've listened to the Left Them in Radio Hour today. It's every Sunday from 2 to 3 p.m. We've got podcasts and other information about all the stories today on our website, left.mn. So come on by and check that out and come back next Sunday, 2 to 3, and we'll see you then.